0: Welcome, everyone, to a new year and a new episode in the DNA Papers, the podcast series through which we've been revisiting the seminal papers that describe the discovery of DNA and the major milestones in our understanding of its structure and function. Those who've been following this series may well wonder why, even a full year since we began the podcast, we've held back on talking about the double helix a phrase that is virtually synonymous with the DNA molecule in the minds of most people. Well, folks, the time for reticence is over, because today, in our 12th episode of the series, we finally get to the topic of what might be the most widely recognized iconic aspect of the molecule, its three-dimensional structure, the famed double helix. Having made that claim, however, I need to do a quick backpedal, For although the papers under discussion today are part of a bundle, a trio actually, of papers published in 1953 in Nature, announcing the double helix structure of DNA, the specific papers we discuss today are not actually about the discovery of the structure itself. Rather, today's conversation will focus on the latter two papers of the trio, along with a third paper published a few months later, also in the same journal. All three papers emerged from the laboratories of scientists at King's College London, rather than at Cambridge, where Watson and Crick had come up with their model. And I don't think it's too tall a claim for me to say that without these three papers, the double helix paper that led the original trio may not have been possible. Here to buttress my claim, or perhaps tone it down somewhat, is our distinguished panel of guests whom I'll waste no time in introducing. First, it gives me enormous pleasure to welcome the historian of science, Soraya D. Chadaravian, to the podcast series for the very first time. A renowned historian of genetics and molecular biology from the University of California in Los Angeles, Soraya has written and published many papers on different aspects of the DNA story. I'm delighted she's been able to join us today, all the way from California. Welcome to the series, Soraya.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you for this generous introduction. I'm delighted
0: to be here. It is also great to be able to introduce another first-timer to the series, Elspeth Garman from Oxford University. Originally trained in nuclear physics, Elspeth is an expert in X-ray crystallography, which, as discussed in at least one earlier episode, lay at the heart of dissephering the structure of DNA. Besides using the technique to develop new drugs, Elspeth is also a great spokesperson for science, with many years' experience working with the media on different projects aimed at making it more accessible to the general public. Welcome, Elspeth, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Hello,
2: and thank you very much for the introduction. I'm delighted to learn more about these papers.
0: Our final two guests are by now familiar voices in the series, both molecular biologists who at some point in their careers turned to the history thereof as their main pursuit. Kirsten Hall from the University of Leeds and Jan Witkowski from Cold Spring Harbor Laboratories in Long Island. I should mention that Jan is the co-editor of the book, The Annotated and Illustrated Double Helix by James Watson. Welcome back, both of you, and thank you so much again for giving so much of your valuable time to this project.
3: Thank you, Neeraja. Delighted to be back on.
0: I'll begin the conversation by asking our guests to give elevator pitches of the three papers. But first, I'll quickly provide the titles of the papers along with their authors. The first paper by Maurice Wilkins, Alex Stokes, and Herbert Wilson is Molecular Structure of Deoxypentose Nucleic Acids. The next two papers were both by Rosalind Franklin and Raymond Gosling and were titled Molecular Configuration in Sodium Thymonucleate and Evidence for Two-Chain Helix in Crystalline Structure of Sodium Deoxyribonucleate, respectively. As a quick aside, I think it's really interesting that the common chemical name we know the molecule by, deoxyribonucleic acid, has still not made its appearance. Perhaps that's something we'll get into later in the episode. Right now, Elspeth, would you mind beginning the process of decoding these titles and give listeners the gist of their content?
2: I'm happy to take that on. I give it a try anyway. So these three papers from King's analyse the experimental evidence for consistency against the Watson and Crick model. So they're testing what their results experimentally in the x-ray diffraction field tell them about whether the model is right or not. So the first two, as you said, by Wilkins, Stokes and Wilson, and by Franklin and Gosling, respectively, They analyse the diffraction patterns obtained from fibres of B-form DNA, which is the hydrated form, 92% humidity. It has an increase of 40% of weight and 30% longer as a fibre compared to the dehydrated A-form, which is what is analysed in the third paper by Franklin and Gosling. And that has 75% humidity as opposed to 92% and a 40% water content. And it's important to note that that A form is the form that Franklin had been directed to work on by the head of the unit, John Randall, not on the B form. So the paper, the first one, Wilkins, Stokes and Wilson, that presents the preliminary experimental evidence, and they use preliminary a lot, that they derive from form B. It's a diffraction image of much lower quality than photograph 51, which is shown in the second paper. They say that the DNA structure is the same in all species, and they have photos from of sodium nucleate from calf and pig thymus, wheat germ, herring sperm, human tissue, and T2 bacteriophage. Theirs was actually from Balantiodes coli, which is a protozoan, and it's capable of infecting humans. So the x-ray photos, they say, have two regions, one determined largely by the regular spacing of nucleotides along the chain and the other by the longer spacings of the chain configuration. So what they do is analyze their layer lines. They can see in their diffraction pattern the absences and the relative streakiness of the reflections that they see. So the clue that a helix is there is there's no reflections on or near the meridian, i.e. the equator. So it suggests a helical structure with an axis parallel to the fibre length. And then they quote Alec Stokes because he has calculated the expected diffraction pattern from a helix of uh, nucleotides. Stokes calculated that the intensity of the patterns should be related to Bessel function squared, and this is unpublished. So it corresponds to a spiral staircase with the core removed, which is rather nice. So their interpretation, in summary, of the first paper is that the pitch was 34 angstroms, that most of the mass was at a diameter of 20 angstroms. That's known from the narrowness of the layer line streaks in the pattern, that there were two or three intertwined helices required and that the nitrogen bases must be arranged, as Asprey had said, like a pile of pennies at about 12 angstroms diameter. But they do say this is all not without ambiguity, but it is in reasonable agreement, quote, with the kind of model from Watson and Crick. So they finally summarise the evidence that a helical structure exists in intact biological systems rather than in biochemically separated ones, as known from sperm heads and bacteriophage. And I'll let someone else attack Franklin and Gosling, but I could do the same for that.
0: Thank you, Elspeth, for such a beautifully detailed explanation. Before you get into the second paper, Kirsten, may I ask you please to very quickly give our audience a sense of what an angstrom is? It's a measurement we hear about often enough when we're talking molecules and atoms, but I think some idea of the scale that these scientists were dealing with in their work would be useful for our listeners.
3: Just a little footnote to Elspeth's wonderful explanation of that first paper. And I always think that at the end of the first paragraph of that first paper, there's a throwaway line that I actually think is quite important. So Elspeth mentioned that Asprey and Bell had done this earlier work, using x-rays to make a crack at trying to solve the structure of DNA, which we heard about in in an earlier episode. And there's a line at the end of the first paragraph in the Wilkins, Stokes and Wilson paper, and it says, the sequence of different nitrogen bases along the chain is not made visible. Blink and you miss it, but I think it's really important because I I actually think that that sentence explains why Asprey didn't dig further into this. But I think he was really interested in... For him, molecular biology was all about three-dimensional structures. So I think he appreciated DNA was doing something interesting, but it must be doing something interesting through sophisticated variations in the 3D structure. And I think he was hoping to see the variation in bases, that, as we talked about in the Shargaff episode, might be detectable by X-ray diffraction. And as Wilkins, Stokes and Wilson point out here that variation in base sequence won't show up. We need other methods, but that is another story. Right, an angstrom. Well, if I say it's it, is that a tenth of a nanometer, but then that's not helping, is it? Because what we need is we need to put pictures into people's heads. So we need to give people an idea of how wide a nanometer is. So listeners, this should give you something to, to get a grip on. A human hair is approximately 80,000 to 100,000 nanometers wide, so if I do my sums right, that means a human hair is 800,000 to a million angstroms wide. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of a sense of just what an angstrom is.
1: Soraya? Thank you. I think these explanations were excellent, but I would like to add something, and you can decide if it fits here. About so how this paper was set up and what it set out to do, which also gets us already a little bit in how the triplet of papers came about, right? The decision to publish them together. So on the one hand, I think it's clearly to show how it fits with the structure of DNA, which by this point, when this paper was written, they had a draft of Watson and Crick's paper and also had seen the model right so it's a response to that but i think it's also very clearly to highlight their own contributions to this field right so i think it fulfills this double function and of course there is a decision behind why these publications came about the way they did
0: are we talking specifically about the wilkins et al paper or both the papers wilkins as well as franklin's papers your comment Surreya. i think it may relate to both
1: but i think the publication history of the two papers is slightly different.
0: So I don't know if you want to go into here. We can get to that in a little bit. I think it is interesting and important, and then we can return to it next week a little bit more. But does anybody else have anything to add at this point, or should we move on to the next paper? Else, but then we'll return to you, please. So this is a very
2: similar analysis as we just heard about in paper one. But it's a photo 51, which of course is a very famous diffraction pattern, which is of great beauty and clarity. And that is said also by Wilkins in paper one, that this is a beautiful photograph. The conclusions from it were again, that there was a 34a angstrom period along the fiber axis with 10 residues per turn. And the diameter was of helix 20 angstroms, where most of the bulk of the atoms were. Now why this is important is that the phosphate is the heaviest atom in DNA and so it has the highest scattering of x-rays and so when they say the bulk of what they see is at 20 angstroms that means the phosphate groups must be there and that They also conclude that there's 7.1 angstroms approximately between the phosphorus atoms. There's a very careful analysis, again, of these equatorial reflections that I mentioned from the last one. But the density considerations for DNA mean that they can't actually decide between whether there are two or three helices there. Now, if there were three, then there would be 32 nucleotides in a repeat. And the diameter, if it was 16 angstroms, not 20 angstroms, then they'd have to have 20 residues and two helices. I think what's important here is to realise there was a bit of sort of plus or minus one in uncertainty in all these, or plus or minus two. So they couldn't actually nail it down from the rather fuzzy diffraction patterns. But Franklin and Gosling say it's very probably there are two, not three, chains from their diffraction. But then for form A, they already know, although they haven't published paper three yet, they're already sure that there's only two chains. And because they can interconvert interchangeably, and it's a reversible reaction, that means there have to be two in form B as well. So the other evidence that they can't be three, is that the chains are not equally spaced along the fibre axis. That's very clear from the diffraction pattern interpretation of, in the mathematical analysis. But if the chains were equally spaced along the fibre axis, the helix would have to have a diameter of 60 angstroms, which is far bigger. And it also, if they were unequally spaced, they wouldn't be crystallographically equivalent. So it's got to be two. So this is really important because this is the first time that there's experimental evidence that it's two, not three. So in the summary of that, as confirmed by other evidence as well, the phosphates are on the outside at 20 angstroms, which is in agreement with the Watson and Crick model. There's two coaxial helices not equally spaced, and they say our general ideas are not inconsistent with Watson and Crick. So they haven't said that they think it's right yet. They just said that that it's not inconsistent.
3: Kirsten? There's a name straight after that line that Elspeth just quoted there about our general ideas are not inconsistent with the model. There was a name in here that I was really pleased to see. And it's in the next paragraph where it talks about the work of Gulland and his collaborators. So this is a reference to J.M. Gulland, who was a professor of chemistry at Nottingham. And him and a guy called Jordan, they were doing titrations of DNA. And as it says, what they'd found through those titrations were the amino and keto groups on the bases were shielded they were not involved in the titration so these bases were shielded so basically that they interpreted that as evidence that the bases are on the inside but the other important thing that they found was they began to infer from their work that hydrogen bonding between multiple chains must be involved here now that's as far as they went they certainly didn't get as far as oh it's hydrogen bonding between two chains but I was really pleased to see Gulland mentioned because he doesn't get much of a look in and I'm not I can't remember whether we've mentioned him in previous episodes.
0: Was mentioned, but briefly.
3: Yeah, right, right. Tragically, he was killed in a train crash early 1947. He was travelling down from Edinburgh down to London, train crashed just south of Berwick. Although it's a bit of a claim too far to say, oh, you know, if he'd survived, then he might have made a significant contribution because actually he'd left DNA behind him by then, he'd taken a job with the brewery. But it's good to see him mentioned anyway. My other question was, is this the point at which we start talking about the mythology that's grown up around Photo 51, or do we leave that for later?
0: We'll get to that later. Jan, you had something to say.
4: Yeah, well, I'm glad we've just mentioned Gullen, but of course it was rather similar to the relationship between Franklin and Gosling. The work was primarily done by a graduate student in Gulland's lab called James Creeth. But I wanted to make a general point about these three papers, and that is, and it comes out from Elspeth's description of them: these are crystallographers' papers. These are not these are not biological papers really at all. Wilkins does have that section. It, well, he opens with the with the line: "While the biological properties of DNA suggest a molecular structure." containing great complexity so he refers to biology and he has that final section where they talk about DNA from phage and sperm and so on and it even includes a reference to transforming factor that, in collaboration with Harriet Befruzzi-Taylor although there's no reference to that the word gene or genetic doesn't appear in any of these papers there's no mention of heredity there's really no mention of the proposed functions or suggested functions of DNA. And that's true of the earlier papers from the King's lab, uh, Fraser and Fraser. Again, it's just straightforward, treating the molecule as a molecule, molecular structure to be solved. A final point about this is that I've actually looked at the draft of the double helix paper. The first draft of it, does not have that opening. We wish to suggest a structure, novel functions, of considerable biological interest. It goes straight into the paragraph about Linus Pauling and Corey's trip. So sometime between the first draft, or maybe the final first draft, and the actual paper, Jim and Francis inserted that opening sentence.
0: Soraya, you had your hand
1: up? I hear sometimes we speak about two papers and then three papers. I just want for for the audience to make clear, when we speak about three papers, do we speak about the trio of papers that appeared in April 1953 in Nature, or do we speak about the trio of papers that we have selected for this conversation, but so far we have only presented two? I think we should make it clear, because I myself am a little confused.
0: Okay. So yes, you're right. When we talk about the trio, we talk about the 1953 trio that appeared together in Nature. The papers under discussion in today's episode are also a trio, but the third paper appears a few months later, and that's also by Franklin and Gosling. And right now, I think we were referring back to the Watson and Crick paper, but we are getting to the third paper under discussion now, and I will ask. Elspeth, again, may I return to you, or Soraya, did you have something else to say?
1: No, I, I am very happy for Elspeth to take over the, the technical description of the papers, but maybe there's something to say about the first two as being part of the trio, because the third one that we are going to speak about in a way is a little separate, right? I think.
2: Yes. I think the third one is the real great one, because it's the one that actually nails it.
1: Okay, why don't we speak about that one and then speak about the whole publication politics behind it, which is something I'm very interested in.
2: Okay, the third paper is about Form A, which is the the relatively dehydrated version, and which was what Franklin and, and Gosling were supposed to be studying all along. And the results in this paper were actually in an MRC report that Franklin submitted in December or in autumn of the year before 1952, which was seen by Max Perutz, who was on the committee and who actually then showed it to Francis Crick, who realized how important it was. And I'll come to why it was very important in a minute. So this paper is a beautiful analysis of cylindrical Patterson function, The Patterson function is a mathematical formulation which you can calculate directly from the intensity of distribution of the reflections. Now this is really important because there's something called the phase problem in macromolecular crystallography which means that not only do we need the intensity of the reflections but we need the phase of the wave that made that reflection by interference and these phases are hard to come by but the Patterson function can be calculated directly from the intensities of the spots, which is what Franklin and Goslin did in this paper. They obtained the predictions from Stokes of what would be expected from a helical structure, both intertwined two helices and displaced from each other by half of the unit cell, as it were, the repeat. The Patterson can be calculated, as I say, directly from the reflections. But what actually is it? Well, if you imagine three atoms and you take the vector between A and B and plot it on a little spiny sort of hedgehog diagram with a zero being the zero zero, and then you take B and C, which is going in a different direction, and you plot that and then you plot A to C and you plot that, you end up with a sort of fuzzy ball of sticks coming out, a bit like a pineapple stuck in an orange at a party, right? And the origin peak, which is the orange, you know, you know those pineapple and cheese sticks you get at parties stuck in an orange. The orange in the middle is is the origin. And what it is, is it's a summary of the interatomic distances. And it's repeated many times. If you take all these interatomic distances, and they all go on top of each other. And that's what's been plotted in this paper. The theoretical positions of the phosphate, if there's a double helix and it's displaced, as I say, the phosphates being the heaviest component will show as peaks. Now what's in the paper is figure one is a really remarkable correspondence of the expected peaks and the contours derived from the actual image. The space group is stated in the paper as being face-centered monoclinic. Now that gives you a number of options for space group but because this is a chiral molecule in other words the asymmetric carbon atoms that they're, they're arranged asymmetrically that restricts the allowed space groups because you can't rotate you can't we can't have mirror symmetry for instance and so the c2 I can turn it that way to that way. It's the same whichever way up I hold it. That means that the helices must be going anti-parallel to one another because otherwise when you turn it upside down, it's not the same as it was. So as Franklin and Gosling say, this is exactly what would occur for two coaxial chains related by a dyad axis, so a twofold axis, as suggested by Watson and Crick. The form, as we've talked about already, uh, is 11 residues per turn, 28 angstrom repeat. And the bases are not flat. They're in the helix. They're tilted at an angle of 25 degrees. So that's the summary of the paper. And I I think it's a very, very powerful evidence that the Watson-Crick model was
3: correct. Am I right just to chip in there, Elspeth, and say, you know, historians of science that don't usually do Eureka or light bulb moments, but I think I may have just had one there thanks to your your cracking explanation of a Patterson function because I've always been trying to get my head around it and now the penny has finally dropped. I finally grasp it thanks to that wonderful cocktail stick analogy. So thank you. But what I was going to say was, so am I right in thinking actually that before the advent of computers, sitting down and trying to calculate all these Patterson functions for Franklin and, and, and Gosling would have been an absolute mind-numbing, real number-crunching grind. They're sitting there with these little, um, is it the beaver's lips and strips that you use to calculate? Yeah, just from what I've read, I just got the impression it would just be a gruelling, gruelling effort, which I guess makes it even more impressive.
2: Even the very basic computers could do in half an hour what it would take a graduate student four months to do. Or it would take the computers to do, because the original computers were bands of ladies that were employed to do these calculations.
0: Thank you for that call out. I always love the fact that that's what computers were. They were women. Soraya? Is that actually a fact that
1: they had these computer girls, that this paper was built on this, or was this really Gosling's calculations, because he was doing his PhD? I think this was Gosling. Yeah, I
0: do think so. And I'm going to move on to the next question and ask you, in turn, to give some background about all the authors of these papers. Maurice Wilkins, Alex Stokes, Wilson, Rosalind Franklin, and Raymond Gosling. What was their expertise? How did each one of them become interested in DNA? Where was DNA in their research careers? Could we start with Wilkins and Kirsten? Since you have something to say, just answer this question as well, please.
3: I was going to chip in on Franklin, but I'll save that. It's in the context of something some, that somebody said to me the week before last, which I'd like to I'd be really interested to get the other guests' responses on. But Wilkins, he'd been raised in New Zealand. I think he had Irish ancestry. had been raised in New Zealand. And he'd come back. He'd gone to Cambridge, but hadn't done particularly well there because I think he he felt he'd spent way too much time involved in political activities. Very active on the political left. He went back to his hometown of Birmingham for a PhD, where he, he crossed paths, fateful crossing of paths with John Turton Randall, who was a physicist who, like a lot of other physicists, eventually became interested in biology. Wilkins headed out to California, 1940, to the Lawrence Cyclotron Lab to fractionate uranium for the Manhattan Project. And when you read his autobiography... Third man of the double helix, um. Which, I, as a little footnote, I always think it's really sad that everyone, every other player in this story, James Watson, Francis Crick, Rosalind Franklin, they all get, they all get several biographies written about them. In some cases, but poor old, poor old Morris Wilkins, no, nobody bothered writing a biography about him. He had to had to write his own, his autobiography. He said when he when he saw the horror of what had been unleashed at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, he basically had a A bit of a road to Damascus experience, and uh, he basically decided that he was going to turn to the science of life rather than unleashing death on such a horrific scale. The other influence he always said was crucial in changing his direction from physics to biology was reading Erwin Schrödinger's little book, What is Life?, which was published in 1944. And there are a lot of physicists who have often said that this was a crucial influence on them. I think Gunter Stent said, "Oh, this book was—it was an Uncle Tom's Cabin for molecular biologists." So that's a reference to Harriet Beecher Stowe's 1865 novel, I think, her anti-slavery novel, which some have seen as a rallying cry for the American Civil War and the anti-slavery cause. And Stent was saying that Schrödinger's book played a similar role. It was a, a call to arms for physicists to get stuck into biology, which I always think is quite interesting because actually, long before Schrödinger's book. Asprey and Bell up at Leeds were shining their x-rays on DNA, but that's by the by. When Wilkins came back from California, he reunited with Randall, who was now at St. Andrew's for a short time. Crucial thing, during the war, Randall had played a key part in inventing the cavity magnetron radar device. That had increased his QDOS massively, so he was given an MRC grant to set up a biophysics unit at King's. Interestingly enough, it was with money that uh, Asprey at Leeds had been competing with him for, but the MRC decided to give it to Randall, probably because he helped invent radar, whereas Asprey just, Asprey's war service amounted to being a fire warden. So, yeah, Wilkins moves with Randall down to King's. Wilkins had been doing some work on chromosomes up until that point, using ultrasound, but then Randall gets him doing visual microscopy on DNA. And then I think one of the, one of the crucial moments for Wilkins is uh, he works with Raymond Gosling, PhD student, and it's Raymond Gosling who crystallizes that A form of DNA that we just heard about in that third paper.
1: I thought it's maybe, imp- before we move on, maybe important to say something about John Rander who plays a role here, right? He's the PhD advisor, Wilkins advisor, and then also Wilkins joins him in St. Andrews and then in London. Because John Randall, I think it's important. He he studied a physics at Manchester under Lawrence Bragg. And that's where he learned the X-ray crystallography. Right? So, so he, I think, was a trained crystallographer, at least, one would expect. And so I think since crystallography plays such an important part in the work on the structure of DNA, I think that's maybe important. Generally, I think John Randall has a quite an important role in this whole story. So... Yeah, it's quite interesting to see how the crystallography came into the picture.
0: Elspeth, you had something to say and follow that with telling us a little bit about Wilkins's co-authors, please.
2: That's exactly what I was going to bring in here because of the mention of Randall as well. So Alex Stokes was also a physicist, as Randall was. He was born in Macclesfield in Cheshire, studied in Manchester, and then Trinity College, Cambridge. But interestingly, he learned his X-ray crystallography also with Bragg, Lawrence Bragg, and his PhD thesis was called Imperfect Crystals, which he got in 1943. And then he went to Royal Holloway College joined Randall at King's in 1947 and became a senior lecturer before he finally retired in 1982. But the plaque that was put up on the 40th anniversary of this paper at King's College actually commemorates the main people that we've been talking about, but also Alex Stokes and Herman Wilson, the five of them. So I'll just say a bit about Herman Wilson in a second. But Wilkins apparently asked Alex Stokes, what would the diffraction pattern from a helix look like? And he went on a journey and calculated what it would look like on his journey and gave it to Wilkins the next day. And he was very, very smart mathematically. So Herman Wilson, the other author of that first paper with Wilkins and Stokes, was also a physicist. He was educated at Bangor University. He was a Welshman, did a degree and his PhD there. And he joined Wilkins in September 1952, which, as we'll see, was very, very soon before the publication of this paper. He moved to Queen's College in Dundee and then to St Andrews and then finally was made a professor in Stirling in 1983. But the most interesting thing I found out about him was that he was a Welshman. In 2003, the Ice Stedford made him a gorsehead of bards. So he was a Welsh bard. That's all I I will say about them. But I think that they deserve a place in this podcast because they're never mentioned.
0: Oh, absolutely. Soraya, could you begin with telling us about Franklin? I think everybody has something to add about Rosalind Franklin.
1: Yeah, I can certainly start. So uh, Rosalind Franklin, she studies in Cambridge at Newnham College. And she studies natural sciences and graduates in 1941, and then she enrolls for a PhD program in physical chemistry. But she's not so satisfied what she finds at Cambridge, and so does her research actually with the British Coal Utilization Research Association, and this then provides the material for her Cambridge PhD. And this is also important. This work on structure of coal, because that's also what she will pursue then in as a postdoc when she moves to Paris in one thousand, nine hundred and forty-seven as a postdoctoral researcher and works with the Laboratoire Central de Service Chimique de l'Etat on the structure of coal. She comes back to England in, and to join King's College in one thousand, nine hundred and fifty-one and. It's pretty important uh, so that here's the point where Randall plays a role because he hires Rosalind Franklin and he puts her also on the DNA structure problem. That was not the original plan, but then in the end, that is what he wants her to do. And I think this is then also the source of some of the misunderstandings between Wilkins, what the role of the two is, because uh, Wilkins was already also working on the DNA problem. She doesn't stay at King's very long at all, already in the beginning of 1953. So before this paper, this three of papers, the 25th of April papers, appear, she has already moved to Birkberg College, London, where she works under Bernal and builds up her own little group studying viral structure, where she does very important work with an important group of collaborators, including uh, future Nobel Prize winner Aaron Klug and John Finch, and other people who later joined the LMB in Cambridge. And as we all know, she died prematurely and tragically in in 1957 from cancer. I just wanted to come back to the move
2: from Paris to King's that Soraya mentioned, because she wanted to come back to be nearer her family. Although she loved Paris, she absolutely was a Francophile. Every part of the French lifestyle. She loved it. But she consulted Charles Coulson, who was an applied mathematician and theoretical chemist at at King's. And he said, if you're interested in biological applications of the techniques that you know so well, there's a lot to be said in favour of King's. And she was taken on by Randall to work on proteins in solution and how they changed when they denature, i.e. they're heated or dehydrated. But then when she arrived, Wilkins was on holiday, and they had these DNA fibres that Wilkins had been working on from Rudolf Signer in Bern in Switzerland that he'd been working on since May 1950. She arrived in January 1951. And her response to being moved on to the DNA project was great, because it's how I felt when I moved from nuclear physics to biology, which was, I am, of course, most ignorant about all things biological but I imagine that most x-ray people start that way, which I thought was a wonderful quote from her. So Wilkins came back from holiday to discover that he thought he was going to be having Franklin working more or less for him or with him, but to discover that Randall had told her that she was actually in charge of I mean, the quote from Randall is, this means that as far as the experimental x-ray effort is concerned, there will be at the moment only yourself and Gosling. So without telling Wilkins, he actually gave what Rosalind Franklin thought was her own project.
1: Maybe just to add and also move the graduate students, right? Gosling was already working for Wilkins to uh, him to continue working with Rosalind Franklin.
0: Jan, was your comment in direct response to Elspeth and Soraya's? in which case I'll ask you to go first?
4: Yeah, I wanted to ask Elspeth if she knew why Franklin moved into biology.
0: Elspeth?
2: I think that she took the advice of this Charles Coulson, who I, I believe was a family friend, but I'm not quite sure about that. And I think that she felt she'd done coal for long enough and wanted a change. I mean what was staggering about her is that she you know died at the age of 37 having made absolutely pivotal contributions in three completely different scientific fields in that the very first virus structure tobacco mosaic virus was from her lab when she moved to Birkbeck she said that she'd exchanged a palace for a slum but that she was much much happier there because she had a miserable time at King's, they wouldn't even let women into the common room for the staff. She wasn't allowed in.
0: I mean it was horrendous. Kirsten, and then back to Soraya.
3: yeah, just just following up the line that Elspeth quoted there from Randall's letter when he says, you know, as far as the experimental effort is concerned, Franklin's biographer Brenda Maddox has a wonderful description of she she refers to that line as the poisonous phrase, which I think is great because. So much grief resulted from Randall's mismanagement of that situation, by not being clear about setting the boundaries about who was doing what. But I just wanted to come back to the, the issue of coal. I was at a, an event a couple of weeks ago and I was challenged over Rosalind Franklin. Someone came up to me and the charge against me was, if I've understood what they were saying, right, the charge against me was that I've been too soft on Rosalind Franklin. I've been an apologist for her. And the person's argument was this, she'd done a chemistry PhD, she was a chemist by training, she should have known all about hydrogen bonds, therefore she should have been on the ball more and cracked the double helix. And it was one of those moments when you take a deep breath and you count slowly to 10. And first of all, I thought, well, you know, that's quite a whiggish way of looking at it. You know, we are judging, we're judging the protagonists of the past there from the vantage point of the present with you know 2020 hindsight but aside from that i thought another aspect of this is the fact that franklin's first paper thermal expansion of coals and carbonized coals you know as as Saraya said she was working on the porosity of coal she did all this work on graphitizing and non-graphitizing carbon um, and then it strikes me that she was actually a what we'd call today a material scientist And Elspeth has that wonderful line there about when she comes to Kings and she says, of course, I'm most ignorant about all things biological. There's another great line from her that's cited in her biography by Brenda Maddox. And Franklin described herself as being, I'm a physical chemist who knows very little about physical chemistry, but an awful lot about the holes in coal. I thought this is a really interesting context in which to see Rosalind Franklin, because what I didn't realise was that she was still publishing on coal right at the end of her career. I never realised her last paper, I think, Nature, 1957, changes in the structure of carbon during oxidation. And this gave me a whole new perspective on her. I thought, is it possible to see her as she's a material scientist who steps into biology, obviously does amazing things, and in some ways I think it accentuates her achievement.
4: I am just following up on your, your remarks about Franklin and holes and coal. Elspeth, correct me, but... She was not an X-ray crystallographer when she came to King's because she'd worked with amorphous substances. And in a way, that makes her achievement with DNA even more remarkable.
2: I think she'd done a lot of powder diffraction experiments with X-rays.
4: But she had not worked on crystals before she came to King's. Is that right?
2: She was an expert on, you're quite right, of the crystallography of amorphous samples. Yes, not ordered ones. So, you know, heating up carbon to 3000 and then looking at the uh, patterns and so on. So she was an expert in X-ray analysis, but not of ordered uh, material.
1: Soraya? Which might explain why she was focusing on the A-form also, right? Which is actually also something I have not thought about before. But that was much less much less clear crystals, right? And maybe she that's one thing that attracted her to the A-form also. Because of her previous skills. She had
2: fantastic experimental skills, which we haven't mentioned yet, but I did mention the relative humidity of forms A and B. And one of the problems that Maurice Wilkins had experienced was trying to control exactly what the humidity was. And Rosalind Franklin actually built an equipment with Gosling that could control uniquely, exquisitely control the humidity, so they could actually go backwards and forwards between the A and B form by changing the humidity. And she was a wonderful experimentalist. And the other lovely tidbit is that the x-ray generator that they were using was actually, ironically, it was a prototype fine focus device, and it was built at Burtbeck by Werner Ehrenberg and Walter Speer and it was given to Wilkins and Gosling, but then it was used solely by Rosalind Franklin and Gosling. So Birkbeck appear in this story well before Rosalind Franklin actually moves to Birkbeck because the X-ray generator was really a wonderful new machine, a very good one that that she used to get uh, Photograph 51, or that they used, I should say, to get Photograph 51.
3: Yeah, can I just jump in there and say that, yeah, and and Wilkins actually was not bad at experimental innovation himself because I was always impressed to read that. So when him and... Gosling began their work on the A-form, one of the problems that they had initially was, of course, there's a lot of oxygen, carbon, nitrogen in the air. So they were getting backscattering just from those atoms in the air, which was interfering with the, the scattering patterns of their DNA. So they've got to find some way of getting rid of backscattering from the air. So they they hit on the idea that what we've got to do is bubble hydrogen into the DNA sample and that will that will prevent the backscattering. Problem then was they had hydrogen leaking from their x-ray tubes, at which point Wilkins produces a load of condoms with which he uses to seal the x-ray tubes to prevent the hydrogen leaking out. So I, when I read that, I thought, yeah, hats off to you there for uh, thinking on your feet and innovation. Yeah, I like that. Sorry, sorry to lower the tone there.
0: No, no worries. Soraya? Just a very brief comment just
1: thinking about what we said about Rosalind Franklin's background, and I'm not a specialist in these crystallographic techniques, but one thing is she de- she determined the space group, but she actually didn't deduce that they were anti-parallel, that the two st- uh, strains were anti-parallel, as, you know, Crick, who had much experience with the space group, could quickly sort of, re- you know, establish. So her missing this detail, which may be attributed to her only just moving into the X-ray crystallography part of the work.
4: I'll comment on that, if I may, Sarah. Aaron Klug remarks on this very point in both of his essays on Franklin and DNA. In one of them, the second one, he writes, Franklin hardly ever reminisced about DNA in the years I worked with her on virus structure. But she once said that she could have kicked herself missing the implications of the C2 symmetry. So I think that you're quite right. And Luke says, had she been a crystallographer and understood the meaning of the C2. So I think the point you've just made is exactly right. And of course, it was, it was Crick who who saw that the implications of that C2 symmetry.
0: Before going on with this, I would like to get to Gosling. So I would like to hear about... This graduate student who changed labs became what started out as Wilkins student and then went on to author two papers, two of the very important DNA papers with his second advisor, Rosalind Franklin. Soraya, would you go first in giving us some background about him?
1: He changed hands twice, right? He changed hands from Wilkins to Franklin and then back from Franklin to Wilkins, right? yeah only briefly when he finished his phd and you know and then also quite recently i think he he stated quite clearly that it actually it actually was him taking the famous photograph 51 which is quite interesting right
4: the, the photo 51 is in his phd thesis and we were talking earlier about calculations and i've just looked in his thesis And he clearly did all the calculations. I mean, obviously with guidance, but I think he probably did the the donkey work, so to speak. So he was born in 1926 and did his undergraduate degree in physics at University College London and then moved to to King's. He got his PhD, I guess, in late 53, maybe early 54.
2: He was 54.
4: Yeah. And then he went on to lecture in physics at St. Andrews, before moving, interestingly, to the West Indies, where he remained as a professor there until 1967. So he was a good many years in West Indies. And he came back to become a lecturer and reader and professor at at Guy's. I will say I, I knew him, and he was an absolutely lovely man, he and his wife, Mary, and he's obviously not an unsung hero of the story, but it becomes a little bit unsung in relation to Franklin.
0: So, Elspeth, you had a remark to make, and then I'll get to my next question. Um, yes, I just wanted to sort of say
2: that this difficulty with Maurice Wilkins coming back from holiday and discovering, A, that his graduate student had been reassigned, and B, that his samples were now being worked on by Rosalind Franklin, without consultation with Randall, developed and I mean it was a bad start and it got worse and worse. And by October nineteen fifty one, so only ten months into Rosalind Franklin's time there, it had got so bad that Randall actually had to do something about it. And he directed them then, as I indicated before, that Gosling had to work on the dehydrated A form with the signa fibers and the best camera and Wilkins on the B form with the other fibres that didn't crystallise very well. So actually the B fibres were worse than the A fibres. So the photo 51 is, of course, of the B form. So that photograph 51 was taken with a tilted camera that Rosalind Franklin and Gosling actually put together, and then they did the cylindrical Patterson calculations on them. So I just wanted to make it clear how that arose, that they were directed to do the different, a and B.
0: I do want to go a little bit into the publication history of these papers, but also talk a little bit about my choice to feature them before we talked about the Watson and Crick paper, even though the Watson and Crick paper appears first. And one of the reasons I chose to discuss these papers first, because it was always my understanding that these papers provided the data that formed the foundations for the model proposed in the Watson and Crick paper. And I think I mentioned this in the introduction, saying that the Watson-Crick paper, the double helix would have been impossible without the data produced in these papers. I'm not the only person who thinks so. And in a 2004 reprinting of all three papers, the original 53 papers, the presenter comments that among the three papers, only Franklin's had the real data relevant to the model, her beautiful x-ray photograph of BDNA and the parameters of the double helix calculated from it. Yet, it is ironic that the paper gives the impression of being just an afterthought. So, please take this on, all four of you, in whichever order you please. Any follow-up, any comments to that observation? Suraya? Yeah, I am interested in this question because...
1: You know, I thought it was interesting that you suggested we focus on the paper two and three as it is first, before we look at the paper one, which was the Watson crick paper of the original trio, because often they are forgotten or not, I mean, not really forgotten, but not looked at so closely as we do now, which is, I think, very valuable. But as a matter of fact, of course, and I don't completely agree with this quote that you just read out. I mean, Watson and Crick did not know all the details that were then in the paper. So it's not quite right. And so the publication history here, which is really something I looked into only, you know, after you suggested that we should look at paper two and three, is really quite interesting and meaningful and different for for all three papers. And so what I found out just reading through these different books that people have written about, and, you know, it's just bits and pieces. But so it seems that actually, Watson and Quick asked uh, Wilkins to be a co-author. I think this is quite interesting. And he mentions this in his book. And Wilkins says no. He thought that King's people should publish separately. And he regretted this later. And so this is in his uh, biography. So this, I think, is a very interesting point. So Watson wanted the paper out quickly, but it was agreed that there would be one or two weeks, not very much, for the king's people to write up their results. And so that's why I think in the Weekend's paper, we hear a lot that this is preliminary, right? And so I think it's also to make clear. So this is what the king's people did, right? And, you know, this decision that the three should be, it says, talking with the editor and so on. I think that maybe also Bruck was quite important. Brack wrote a letter supporting the publication of Watson and Crick's paper, for sure, uh, how much he was involved in the negotiations that the other three papers should also involve. So Wilkins writes a paper with his two collaborators, Stokes and Wilson. And then he says he was quite surprised that also Rosalind Franklin and Gosling wanted to include a paper, which is interesting. And so apparently their publication is a little bit different because they had a nearly ready paper to go and then rewrote it in respect to now they, they knew because they had seen the model and had seen the draft of Watson Crick's paper. And so they redrafted the paper. And that is, for anyone interested, that is in the first biography of Rosalind Franklin in Ann book, which, by the way, has some inaccuracy, I think. That she was the first one right, to write this biography. You know, a lot of research has been done before. I don't know if anyone has looked at the Macmillan's archive. I think it should be. I think it would be really interesting. I'm not sure what one finds there. I have, there's a long article about the archive at Macmillan's that was publishing Nature. And from there, it seems maybe not so much is, is left, but it would be interesting to look. So that's how these three papers come along. Jan?
4: Yeah. Well, I think maybe the order of the papers, Soraya, was, was Gale's editorial decision. Yeah, Maybe you put up front the, I was going to say more exciting, but the biological speculations and, and reason that one would want to study this molecule and then follow it by the technical papers. Uh, you mentioned the Macmillan archives. When nature moved offices, I think in the early 60s or mid 60s, they threw everything away. So there is no correspondence between Gale and the King's group or the Cambridge group. Uh, Also sometime, and it's difficult getting these in the right sort of order because not everything is dated, but certainly sometime it was Bragg who suggested that there should be one paper from the Cambridge group and two from King's. And you're right, of course, that the King's group had a copy of Jim and Francis's draft while they were writing their papers. I don't know when Franklin and Gosling first started drafting that paper. I have it down that they were doing a draft after the King's group had received the Watson paper.
1: In this biography, it says March 17.
4: Yeah, that's what I've got. Well, the Watson sent the draft to Wilkins earlier than that, in the beginning of that week, somewhere between the 13th and the 16th.
1: That's interesting, because Sardas makes the argument that the writing of the paper was independently of the Watson Creek work.
4: Well, to, t- to tell you the truth, that's what I thought too. But the dates that we have don't really suggest that, although as I just said, these dates are not at all only some of them where there's a dated letter. The dates are, the order is certainly rather uncertain.
1: But wait, but you can't write a letter. I mean, it would be quite unusual to write a paper in one or two days. Is that what you suggest, that she received the paper just two days before?
4: Well, the paper wasn't submitted until April the 2nd.
1: No, but when did Franklin receive the Watson Creek paper?
4: That's a good point. Sometime earlier that week, so maybe three or four days earlier. They started the draft on the 17th. They didn't complete it on the 17th. It's
2: a very, very short paper. so.
4: Because they, they submitted their paper, as I say, on uh, April the 2nd.
0: I think this length of paper issue might be a disciplinary thing, Soraya, also, in that as historians and ruminators of science, we, write, we take much longer to compose a paper, whereas Franklin and Gosling had the data.
1: Just to say, I mean, it seems there was a rewriting. Um, apparently, there are two drafts. I mean, I have this from the from this uh, biography. I don't, I haven't seen the draft, but I there was an original draft, and there was one then redrafted to after they knew that the, the helix was there. So I think the dates is often very important to figure out what happened, but in this case, one needs to dig deeper, I guess.
4: Well, I, I will say that I'm not altogether sure that Anne Sayer's book is entirely reliable source for these sorts of details.
1: Yeah, I certainly found some details which I didn't find. And she was the first one out, right? And she's also, I mean, a I friend, I mean, she was also not the 20th one.
0: There was one other interesting thing that occurred to me as you were all talking because I was just looking at the acknowledgments at the end of the Franklin and Gosling papers, and in the first paper, they thank Randall, of course, and then Crick, Stokes, and Wilkins for a discussion. And besides acknowledging an award, Watson is not mentioned, and neither is Wilson. So I just wondered if any of you had any comments about this.
4: I don't think anybody would have, at that time, would have consulted Jim for expert opinion on x-ray crystallography or fiber so I think I think you know, obviously Stokes obviously Randall for being the head of the department. who else is there
0: Stokes whose calculations as Elspeth mentioned were very important calculations and predictions Crick and Wilkins and in the second paper really it's only Randall and not so much for any contributions as interest and encouragement <laughs> and again even in this first paper Randall's only mentioned for interest and Crick, Stokes, and Wilkins for discussion. So I guess the junior people were not, the junior most were not included because whether they may or may not have been in on the discussions. Like you said, it's about crystallography. So shall I move on to the next question, or is there anything else? Just one thing, or the point that Jan brought up about the
1: sequence. Maybe we can just say a few things more here. So we have the Watson Crick first. We will look at this in the next episode. And then two and three who decide. I do think Watson Creek was the leading paper. That's clear. That was the most striking new result. I think there should not have been any doubt there, but there could still have been discussion. But of course, Wilkins was more senior in a way to Rosalind Franklin. So that might have defined the sequence. But I think it's an interesting point to think about. It's too bad, (laughs) the background papers there. I wonder if in Bragg, have you looked, Jan, in Bragg's archive?
4: Are they at the Royal Institution? Yeah. No. Elspeth, I've got a question for you. Have you ever compared the two actor Crystallographia papers that appeared towards the end of fifty three? Because they were submitted in March of March the sixth, written before and submitted before the double helix. Have you ever compared the information that's in the double helix? No.
2: I think that's a really interesting question. I haven't compared them. I, I did have a look at the helical actor paper of Cochrane this morning, but I haven't looked at those ones because, as you say, they, they were submitted before this and it, it's almost like they did this very quickly. I mean, Roslyn was extremely careful about what she was prepared to say and they felt that they have been gazumped, as we would say, and that
0: they produced this quickly just to have a a placeholder. Could you just clarify for the audience, who were the authors of the papers?
4: There were Rosalind Franklin and Gosling. Both of them? One was about humidity, and the other was a Patterson cylindrical function.
0: Okay. I
4: didn't write down the full titles of them.
1: But they are not cited in their paper of April 25. Because they were published later. They were submitted only.
4: They appeared later. They they weren't published, apparently, until...
1: If you look at the publication that they cite in the IP25 paper, they mentioned two papers in print. No, one is in the press and one to be published. The one to be
2: published may be still under review at that point.
0: Both those papers are cited in the second of the... Franklin and Gosling, Nature Papers. They are both cited, and they're both cited as being in press. I think the importance of these papers in the story of DNA is self-evident. Without them, we wouldn't know the structure of DNA. And their importance in biology becomes much more indirect. And I think it's worth mentioning the fact that Watson and Crick and Wilkins, probably as well, were nominated in different years for the Physiology Prize, but in another year for the Chemistry Prize as well. They're not the first people in the DNA story who've been nominated in two categories and got it in one or the other category. Does any of you have any comment on that?
1: What you just said was the structure of DNA wouldn't be known without those two papers?
0: Well, without the work that went into those two papers. So some of it. Not all of it, right? And I,
1: the, the Watson and Crick didn't know all the details when they came up with the model. That's the one point. And the second point is, of course, especially Wilkins worked for a long time to correct and provide more evidence for the double helical structure. But it's not correct to say that everything that's in the paper was used by Watson and Crick because they didn't have those two papers. And they were very happy to see that there was this strong experimental evidence for the model. You know, they didn't know that in advance when they built the model. I think that's important because the Watson-Crick model brought something else. So not just crystallographic reasoning, but also this model building and all kinds of various evidence and different kinds really of reasoning that produced the model, right? Which then needed experimental evidence, which partly was provided by those two papers. So saying that those two papers are really sort of the... The absolute basis that they needed all those papers, it was a different route, I think. And they got there first. I mean, that needs to be said, right? And that's why I also think it's correct that their paper would have been the first one, right, in that trio.
0: Point taken. I think you've all done a really great job in disentangling the relationship interaction among all these papers, the relative importance, the parts that were independent of each other, the parts that depended on each other. And I'd like to go to the big picture now about the double helix itself, which occupies a rather odd and strange place in the history of DNA. It is one of the most iconic things about DNA, I think. DNA itself being an icon and now part of everybody's language. They talk about TV shows having DNA, designers having DNA. They put, I mean, one of the most crazy experiences I had was once A pill claimed to have DNA and RNA, which immediately raised the question, whose? But DNA is just everywhere. And the double helix is the most recognized image that goes with DNA. I mean, the older image that was so memorably encapsulated by Avery and quoted in a previous episode where he writes to his brother about spooling out this substance with a glass rod has sort of disappeared, and the picture that we've used, for example, as the introduction to this entire podcast, the picture we put on the top of the web page is a little tube, an Ep tube, Eppendorf tube, but with a little transparent helix, double helix, and yet it remains beyond the understanding of most people. Elspeth did a masterful job in attempting. I will say attempting to bring it to more people, because I still think, even with those explanations, the connection between why that is important and what that means for us is actually, I still think, nebulous, even though it's recognized as the icon. And could you all comment on this state of affairs?
4: The public doesn't think about DNA, I think, as a chemical or a structure. They think about DNA in terms of the secret of life as an emblem of inheritance, whether it's the design of a Jaguar car or or something like that. They know about it through DNA fingerprinting. Although it's nebulous in the sense of the relationship between the public and the chemistry and the physics of DNA, I think it's very easy to feel some sort of affinity for that wonderful little, little icon.
0: Thank you, Jan, the affinity for that wonderful little icon. I think that needs to go down into the books in the future. But Soraya.
1: Yeah, I have quite a bit to say about this. So I do think in the historiography, I think this question of the double helix has been overstated, right? I don't think this is the most salient or biologically important aspect of Watson-Crick's paper or of the structure of the double helix. The complementarity of the base pairs is much more important. The point that it was a helix, first of all, it was not so unusual to think in terms of helix. I mean, um, Pauling had already described the alpha helix as a structure of proteins. So a helix is just a structural thing. Actually, in the reception of the DNA in Watson-Crick's paper and you know it actually created problems it created for instance deep problems in Max Delbrück's mind now this was a prominent molecular phage geneticist very important in the history of molecular biology also Watson's teacher and so they couldn't just figure out how this would work how the helix would unwind it was the unwinding problem and he was so bothered by this problem that he doubted the correctness of the double helix and also Watson himself and quite late actually so I, I think it was 56 or 57 also started having doubts and wondered if there were two helices that were moved into it rather than intertwined. So from that point of view, that was actually more of a problem in the public reaction. I do think that the double helix with this, you know, like a staircase with the two bases coming in does actually help to explain the chemical structure in a way that seems quite intuitive. I don't think they're so puzzled by it. I think actually it helps. But, you know, the helix has, of course, this all this symbolic meaning, right? And so in helix and spiral and so on, then gets all mixed up. And in that respect, again, it works, right? And he gave it all kinds of meanings, you know, also metaphysical meanings. And so in that respect, I think it works very well. It gives an idea about the chemical structure and it's an icon that works, right? I mean, we could think, and I make often this argument about protein structure, right? The first protein molecule, this atomic structure, which was discovered in the same laboratory and you know, had a completely irregular structure, which was a big disappointment to the people who did this. And you I know, show these two things next to it and then say, you know, this couldn't have become the symbol. Also, the model was... Not very attractive. People thought it was intestine. So it looked like something like that. So, in terms of a symbol of an icon for a new science, it worked brilliantly. But also, of course, this is a development that happened later, right? It happened only after Watson's book. So that's a long conversation. But so I do think it works for the scientists, it created problems. For the public, I think it works to explain roughly the chemical structure. And also for these more vague, iconic kind of references. Kirsten?
3: The issue that you raised there about how we remember the players who were involved in this story got me thinking about it's the concept of black boxing. So, if listeners aren't familiar with that, it's a concept I think that was coined by philosopher of science Bruno Latour, and he borrowed it from cybernetics. So, The idea of the black box being you don't need to understand the processes that are going on inside the black box. All you're bothered about is the output. There's an input into it, and you get an output. And you don't need to know the technicalities of what's going on inside. And he applied that to thinking about the history of science. And what he meant was that what happens is, and going back to what Saraya says there about the success of the double helix, in some ways it is so she's right, it's so successful that what happens is. The thing itself becomes uncoupled from the people who were involved in its discovery. Put it another way Nobel laureate Sidney Brenner, he once lamented, there's a Nature paper about 1985 where he has this lament. He says, For most young molecular biologists, the history of their subject is divided into two epochs the last two years and everything else before that, the present and the very recent past. Are perceived in sharp detail, but the rest is swathed in legendary mist where Crick, Watson, Mendel, Darwin, perhaps even Aristotle, coexist as uneasy contemporaries. And you could probably throw Franklin, Gosling, everyone else into that. And, and the point he's making there is that we there's almost a way of thinking that we don't need to remember All that matters is that the stuff's discovered and it works and that we don't need to remember the players involved in that. Obviously, as a historian of science, I disagree with that completely. But I do think there's something to that idea that discoveries like this get black boxed. You know, the double helix becomes uncoupled from the people involved in its discovery. Or if not uncoupled, things just get completely muddled up. So as an example, Being a man in middle age now, I think it's my prerogative to shout at the television. And for I guess for most guys, that usually happens during the news or football matches. But for me, it's during episodes of the UK quiz show, University Challenge. Because just a couple of weeks ago, one of the questions was, second picture round in Southampton versus Trinity College, a photograph of Rosalind Franklin. And the question was, name this scientist who was overlooked for her vital contribution to the discovery of the DNA molecule. At which point I'm shouting at the TV, no, 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 what about Friedrich Miescher in his freezing cold lab washing pus off discarded surgical bandages in 1869 It was subject of the first episode in this series? But what's interesting about that is that the molecule and its function all have become all bundled and confused together. It's remembered in shorthand.
0: What you said about black boxing resonates, and it's not just the people, is it? It's also details about the molecule, and you pointed that out toward the end of your explanation. It's about molecule versus structure versus function versus bits and pieces of it, all of which we've been trying to follow along and put into perspective through this podcast. But I thank you very much for bringing that up. Yan,
4: I just want to go back to what Soraya was saying about Del Brooks' worries about how the DNA molecule unwound. Of course, I, it must have been Francis, not Jim. Uh, Francis said, well, essentially, the structure is right. There must be a way that nature does this. He said, we don't care that we don't know how it's unwound, but there must be a mechanism that does it.
0: Any response to that?
3: Yeah, actually, I think that's a. I think that's a really important point because very often this story, the discovery of the double helix is told as if it's the climactic finale of the DNA story. And in actual fact, it's nothing of the sort. Just preparing for this, I watched that 1986 BBC Horizon dramatisation life story where you've got Jim Watson played by a young Jeff Goldblum and Crick by Tim Pigott-Smith and Rosalind Franklin by Juliet Stevenson. And if you've if you've watched it, you'll know that there's the, the grand finale scene when they've realised the complementary bass pairing, and then you get this sequence where the two of them go into a slow-motion sprint through the streets of Cambridge to then burst into the Eagle Pub, which is packed with drinkers as if it's a New Year's Eve, when in actual fact it was just an ordinary weekday lunchtime. And they're announcing... We've, we've discovered the secret of life, and jubilation erupts, and they're dancing around, and everyone's buying them drinks. And, and this, all, this all fuels this kind of mythology that you know this was the end point, when in actual fact, like Jan says there, it raised all these other questions. How does the molecule unwind? How does the information get out there to the sites of protein synthesis in the cytoplasm? How's the genetic code carried? So, no, this was far from being a climactic finale. And just as a side as well, of course, it was ironic that Rosalind Franklin was added to that plaque outside the Eagle pub a few weeks ago, I saw on the BBC website, when in actual fact, it's kind of commemorating something that never happened because Crick actually said in one of his biographies by Robert Olby, I think, he said, I've got no recollection of us ever having burst into the Eagle pub to make that announcement. And I think Jim Watson has since said that he kind of embellished that a bit for dramatic effect. So there is a lot of mythologizing has gone on around this story.
0: Yes, absolutely. And Suraya, before I call on you, I just want to make a shameless plug for the series, because the series neither puts this at the beginning or at a climactic end. It's rather late in the series that the double helix shows up. Like I said, this was the 12th episode that it actually shows up. And there are episodes beyond the double helix. There could have been more, but we needed to stop. So we are stopping with 14. But I just wanted to make this plug that part of the point of this particular podcast was to demystify, demythify the double helix, but also bring different aspects of DNA research into play, into conversations. Soraya.
1: I agree with much which what has said, and there will be much more talk about the double helix next time round, I guess. But one thing I do think that it's quite unusual. I hope everyone can agree. the The double helix and the discovery of the double helix, this whole story, there has been an incredible amount of focus on it. So I. You know, in a way, I do think the double helix goes together with Watson-Crick and Franklin to an extent that is quite unusual in the history of the sciences. This decoupling, I don't see here, right? So the story, and this very clearly comes from Watson's book, right? I mean, where do we have? There are very few examples where... You know, a discovery is sort of I mean, you know, a whole book's written up and more and more books and more and more comments and more and more little discoveries and so on and so on. So I think actually the two things in this case go quite closely together. And this is a lot of Watson's doing. And this coupling, I think, of the double helix and the people is really quite unusual in the history of science.
4: Can I make one last comment? Very brief one. Sarai and I were talking about the unwinding problem. Well, JBS Haldane solved it. Apparently, there was a conversazione at the Royal Society and how they went to look at the model and said to Gosling, So, what you need is an untwiddlease enzyme to separate the strands. And of course, it was found, or they were found.
0: I'd really like to thank our guests for their patience and wonderful descriptions and explanations for what these papers were about. They're not easy papers to be sure, but they're important ones and I hope the audience has followed along as interestedly as I certainly have. This has been a podcast from the Consortium of the History of Science, Technology and Medicine in Philadelphia. I'm Neerja Sankaran, moderator of the series. And although today is November 6th, you won't be getting to listen to this podcast until next year. And with that, I'll say goodbye for now and wish everyone a happy 2024.